Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to have Rabbi Benji Morgan on, who's the CEO of the JLE in the UK. Uh, he's a tremendous scholar himself and an award-winning public speaker and lecturer. But one of the things he does as the CEO of the JLE, the Jewish Learning Exchange in London, is he oversees the education of five different departments and has 35 staff members that answer directly to him and puts together programs for well over a thousand people every single week. So we jump into his personal story, some of his insights to leadership, and how do you steward a world premier organization? The JLE in London was founded long before, it was just about the year I was born, which was 1983. Um, so it kind of preceded me in its mission. And uh, very interestingly, it was founded uh, originally and uh, by Rabbi Danny Kirsch, who came to London, uh, kind of a visionary in the first of its kind uh, programming. Um, long before Kirov kind of an out Jewish outreach became something global, uh, they kind of the JLE was a pioneer in, in its work. And it started with the community centers, uh, it started going into different community centers, started with a Friday night dinner in Rabbi Kirsch's home. And essentially over the last 30 years, it's grown from one person doing a Friday night dinner to 57 staff, at eight programs and thousands of people being touched every week by JLE. So we are across schools, university campuses, young professionals, young couples. We've got advanced women programs, advanced base measures programs. It's a big operation. And thank God we're lucky to have some really amazing internationally known lecturers such as Rabbi Dr. Kivitatz, who, who works here, who's literally busy around the clock inspiring Jews up and down the country. And people like Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, who's an internationally known historian, who I'm sure you'll get to meet on the show in, in good time. So to, that's the JLE in a nutshell. Um, how did I end up in, in this position? Only, only God knows, only Hashem knows that. I don't really understand it, but um, just a bit about my background and who I am. I was actually born into what we call a normal family. Um, I was actually born in this, um, my parents are British, but my father was an investment banker uh, working on Wall Street. My mother worked uh, for animation studios uh, doing kind of the Hollywood type of things. Um, and when I was born, my parents were completely secular, children of Holocaust survivors, never had a Jewish education whatsoever. And what's really interesting is that we lived, uh, after we, my parents got mugged in Park Slope, they decided to move back to England and um, banking was starting to take its shape here. And my father became, started working in Drexel Burnham um, in the eighties. And we were living in a place called Hampton Garden Suburb, which is a pretty traditional slash secular Jewish neighborhood here in, in Gold, near Golders Green, where I live today. And uh, my father was adamantly and vehemently uh, anti-religious and anti-Jewish. He, he sent us to Jewish schools because he never had a Jewish education, but he was the only father in the school who actually would not wear a yarmulke. So when they said, you come and pick up your kids, you wear a yarmulke, he was the only dad who didn't. <laughs> and if, if you met him today, you wouldn't believe uh, what he looks like. Uh, you know, it's unbelievable. So he's really been on a journey. And uh, that actually started with an organization here called Seed, uh, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. It's kind of similar to Seed in the States, but it's different. Someone by Joey Grunfeld. Um, my father decided he was going to go on some classes because they realized, you know, they're sending us to Jewish schools. And then I would come back with questions like, I'm sure we learned something eating cheese with a burger in McDonald's. And they realized that they needed to kind of figure out this a little bit more. 
And when they realized the beauty of it and the essence of it and the depth to it, they decided to, uh, my father decided to quit banking and go and learn in yeshiva uh, <laughs> uh, for a year. Um, and what's incredible was that he was going to move to Israel, but you know, me and my sister, we were like five and seven and to move to some religious neighborhood in Israel from London was not a great idea. So they were advised to maybe go to, to Gateshead. Wait, can, um, you, can, it, you, can you slow down a second there? So what was that like, if you can go back to those days of having, you know, you were in Jewish school, your father started to make his return to Torah observance. Was it strange to watch? Was it like, what was going on in the home at that point? It's a great question. That's a great question. I actually, there was a lot of anger. On my, my parents were very much on board together, which is quite incredible because it could have gone the other way. But for me, I still remember running up to my room and slamming the door because for me, a lot of Judaism at that point was very much no. It was very much the things we no longer did. I, I you know, for my parents, it might've been great to have a day when they had their phone switched off or not be well in office. But for a kid, it's just like, okay, we no longer go out on Saturdays. We're not going Friday night. Your favorite restaurant, we're not going there, Benji. And you can't go here and we don't do this anymore. And I remember a lot of my Judaism actually being about the things we don't do. <laughs> okay, so, so keep going. You go to Gateshead. So, so my parents decided to go to Gateshead for a year to learn. That was uh, 30 years ago. And um, how, how old was your father this time? It just, this he's, 37 years, he's 37 years old. Um, and he's a, a you know, really accomplished banker. Uh, he was he was one of the top people in his game when he was in Drexel. He he was one who merged uh, Virgin Atlantic with Delta <laughs> and was like good with Richard Branson, very accomplished businessman. But he kind of just needed to like explore this a bit further. So he decided to kind of take a year out, which ended up being uh, four years. And eventually he, he sat and learned in Yeshiva for four years. Now he's in business again. Um, but he stayed in Gateshead, uh, unbelievably. I think he's the only person from Hampstead Garden suburb who's ever moved to Gateshead. Just to understand, Gateshead is like, like a real intense Torah town. It's like black and it's like serious <laughs> study there. But, you know, I, I rocked up in Gateshead in, in like a Yugo Boss tracksuit, I still remember. <laughs> and it, was, it was an interesting experience, so just like transitioning into it, should we say. But just going on to, to how I ended up being an outreach um, was that obviously my grandparents secular, family completely secular. And for me, uh, growing up, I just saw so much misunderstanding, both in my own journey, because as I kind of learned more, I understood there was a depth to this madness. And also for my family, my grandparents were, remained secular until the end of their lives. And I saw how much you know, confusion there was about the religion in the outside world compared to what we were actually celebrating in our home. So I kind of, when I was you know, 18 years old, decided I've got to write really, I've got to bridge that gap. And I kind of felt that that was my mission. And I actually came back to the States and learned in some of the top yeshivot in, in America. I was in Pasek, New Jersey. And then I went, went to Brisk in Israel. Uh, and then I, I learned under some amazing rabbis. One of them was uh, um, Rabbi Yitzchak Berkowitz, who you're probably familiar with. And also someone called Rabbi David Aaron, who is also very well known. And these guys, they kind of gave me the tools to reach out. And it wasn't just the passion, but also the actual tools to reach out to this generation and show them how we can celebrate Judaism in a me meaningful and relevant way. Can I, can um, I interrupt with, with that question? Because sure. I've been lucky to have Rabbi, Rabbi Aaron on the show and Rabbi Berkowitz is someone that I've been you know, enamored by and amazed by for, for many, many years. But they have such separate and so different and distinct styles. So was there a certain approach that you absorbed from, from either of them or from both of them yeah. that you sort of synthesized? What, what spoke to you about the mentorship relationship that you had with them that inspired you to sort of make it your own? It's a great question. I can see you've been doing this for a while. It's a, it's a great <laughs> question. To be 
be honest, there, there is a huge difference uh, between the different styles, but they're not the only two rabbis that had a deep impression for me. I was, when I was in America, I used to go to Matteo Salomon in Lakewood every third Shabbos and I would stay by him. And I was, I was, I, I kind of, I was born in the month of Adar, right? Which is March. And funny enough, in acting school, um, they tell me that 70% of acting school have their birthdays in the month of, of March, right? That's a fact. So what's interesting is that the, the month of March is actually a Pisces, right? That's the star sign. And in Judaism, there's actually a, 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 we say that there's a meaning behind that, behind your star sign, your energy. And one of the energies of the star sign of the month of Pisces is that you kind of have these contradictions, the two fish going each other in a way. Most people, they kind of, those that aren't born in March kind of look at it as binaries. Like, are you this or are you that? Like, are you, like, I don't get it. Are you like religious? Or, someone came to our house and she was like, so you're not religious rabbi, right? She came to our house, like we were having Shabbos and making kiddush. But she was like, because you don't look like everything else that we've seen, we've been told is religion. So I was like, no, we're, we're pretty religious. So um, the, the answer to your question is a lot from a lot of people. And I always learn from ethics. This is something I learned from my home is, Ezu chacham holomit mikol adam. Who is, who is wise he could learn from every person. So for me, it's about learning from everyone. And I would say Rav Berkowitz, he inspired me to take responsibility for Jewish people and to feel that responsibility um, of, of Judaism, Jewish people, and of greatness, of every, inspiring Jewish greatness in every individual and in ourselves and recognizing that. Rabbi Aaron was a completely different thing. He kind of spoke to me in 21st century language. And it's... Uh, spirituality that speaks to this generation, uh, the meaning behind what we do, which was very much would be my desire, but he kind of really was someone I spent a year learning with in Israel every day. And uh, we, we developed a very close relationship. And, and, and funnily enough, a lot of the classes which I teach today are a mix between Rav Berkowitz and Rabbi Aaron. I don't find them contradictory at all. Uh, it kind of is just this oneness. What did you see from Rabbi Matis Yahu Solomon, which again is a huge pioneer and a figure in the Jewish yeah. world, but also very, very different from the other two. What, what did you absorb from the experience living with him, either that impacted you personally or in your career? So interesting enough, it was Matis Yahu Solomon who suggested that my parents move to Gateshead 30 years ago. <laughs> so he said, he said these famous words that were often quoted in our house, which was, may I make a bold suggestion? You know, why don't you come to move to Gateshead? And my parents <laughs> thought he was completely mad. But the next caption uh, was actually they're moving up to Gateshead. Um, so he, he was very obviously, so my father was a bit like a son and I was a bit like a grandson. I would go to him when I was a, a young child, I would go to his house for Sidarium and I've got like little books now that have his inscription and my name on it, which I'm sure, you know, are, are things which will treasure for a long time. Um, but Ramatio, you know, Ramatio was a, a pioneer of Musar in the, today's generation. And Musar essentially means self-development. And what the Torah has so much to say and what we inherently know is that on top of all the knowledge and it's similar to lots of other things that you can learn and study, you get a lot of knowledge from Torah and it can help you in your life. But more importantly than that, Torah is not just the thing that we study, but it's the thing that we become. And, and one of the reasons why, for example, we get so upset when we see someone with a big beard and long payout and then he's in the front of the newspaper on fraud is because we kind of expect that if, wow, if you're learning Torah like that, you would act in a certain way. And Romatio kind of lived that. He was someone who kind of inspired that self-development, that greatness for yourself. Before you go and change the world, how about changing yourself? How about like really working on who you are as a person? And that had a deep and profound impact on me. That, that concept, if we could just zoom in and then we're going to finally get to your story. But yeah. that concept itself, how do you cultivate that in, in yourself and in other people? Because what is so frustrating for so many people is that we live in a world where you're seeing 
all of these massive accomplishments on social media and everyone's seemingly more successful than you. And the Jewish approach is rather than try to go compete on that level, rather to turn inside to go into, it's not a dusty study hall now, thank God all of our, you know, all of our shuls and, and, and classrooms that we learn is, you know, very nice. But the idea of turning inward before or even as the, the outward doesn't even matter. How do you help people cultivate? How do you call, cultivate that for yourself as opposed to kind of go that track of, you know, financial success or fame or whatever it might be? So I think every person has their own journey about how that works for them. And I wouldn't want to speak for other people, but I can tell you how it works for me. For me, there is no contradiction between internal and external. Like I said, I'm kind of a oneness type of guy. So really, your external should be beautiful, and your external should be, everything should be beautiful about the way of Torah. And it's not a contradiction if someone is, has an, a successful career or a successful lifestyle outside of that. But what I inherently learned as a young boy was that my father had kind of reached the American dream of success in every way. It was funny, I asked my parents what a pivotal moment in their journey was, and they told me that it was on a Sunday afternoon, they went to Harrods. Now, you're familiar with Harrods, it's like this, big department store, which is sells expensive things, which most people only look at <laughs> and, and get a photo with a bag. Like you can buy the, you can purchase a bag, like 10 bucks just for the bag. So my parents went to, they go to, um, to Harrods one Sunday afternoon shopping and they bought this. Now this is 1980s. They bought this like 10,000 pound glass dining room table. They already had a tiny table and they bought it. And my mother kind of got the delivery. It was same day. Cause when you spend it's in today's money, let's say 25, 30,000 pounds on a table, <laughs> then they deliver it the same day. And my mother said she cried that whole night uh, because, you know, they finally reached, they'd always hoped, you know, when we can afford, you know why we're not happy? We haven't got that to that level. And they kind of had reached that level of five vacations. My fifth birthday, we went to Heathrow Airport. My father said to me, this is a true story. He said to me, Benji, where do you want to go for your fifth birthday? We just packed cases. We weren't keeping kosher or anything. So he says, where do you want to go? And I said, Disneyland. So we literally... Me, my sister, my parents, we go on the first class, we book first class flights, we're in the plane an hour later and we're on Disneyland that afternoon. That's what the type of lifestyle we live. But then they kind of said, you know what? We'd always felt that when we get to this level, we'd be happy. And there was some inner, something deeply in their souls that they were searching for. So I kind of knew that because I'd lived through that experientially and not everyone in their lifetimes gets to do that. But you know, when you really win, you don't need to show anyone, you know, real winning, when you really win, you do something incredible, something deep, something meaningful. It might be in your house. It might be in your home. It might be with a child. It might be when there's no applause. That's, you know, one incredible thing that I heard from Matsyo. He said over this beautiful idea. He said, we're told Abraham, he was the pillar of greatness, kindness, unbelievable kindness. You know what the Torah tells us what he did? He put his wife's tent up first. It's like... What are you telling me? Like, tell me about the thousands of people you had on Shabbos meals. Tell me about all the incredible things. No, the Torah says, because you know what? If you're, if you're an incredible human being and you do lots for the outside world, maybe you're just doing it for the feeling of success. So the Torah says, no, let's put one thing. Charity begins at home. Let's put one fundamental down. The success that Abraham had was, Abraham had, was because essentially he understood what it means to win without anyone else knowing you're a winner. And that's why I learned from Matziol. That was, that was the deep impression he had on me. Amazing. Okay, so get me to the JLE and how you got involved. Okay, going so back, essentially, going back home because it's so because what's really fascinating what you're saying is that you you really could have worked in a bunch of different areas. You could have gone to America. You could have gone to yeah. the UK. You could have been working in Israel. Yeah. Funnily enough, when I I, I decided that I needed to study and know as much as I could about Torah, so essentially I ended up spending uh, 14 years uh, in in yeshiva uh, full time. 
Um, so I decided if I'm going to go out and do stuff and teach, I want to know what I'm talking about. And, and I spent a long time studying. Funnily enough, I was in uh, number 10 Downing Street with uh, the prime minister when we had a decent prime minister, David Cameron. And um, he came to, I, I was a chat, having a chat with him and he said to me, um, you know, what's your name? I said, Benji Morgan. I'm one of the, I was, at the time I was the youngest rabbi in the UK. And he said, really, how long does it take to be a rabbi? So I said to him, you know, Mr. Prime Minister, you know, you want the long answer, or the short answer? He said, I prefer the short answer. I said, fine. If David, I can have you being a rabbi in two years, but I studied for like 14. <laughs> so, you know, it, and essentially I decided I was going to really, I really had to learn and study and, and know what I was talking about. But when it was the time for us to go out, we did have, thank God, a bunch of offers. We were, we were not coming back to the UK, funnily enough. And I had, I was going to be, it was between an offer in LA and people from that, from that, from that uh, organization might be listening or an offer in, in New York. And for one reason or another, each one kind of had came up with some of these last minute glitches. And then JLE called me up and they said, do you want to interview? And I was like, I really don't want to come back to UK. But as you know, life goes, three months later, I was back, moved with the family and we haven't looked back since. And, and actually I moved, when I came here, I was a rabbi, a uh, junior rabbi in the organization, uh, running different programs for young professionals. That was coming up to seven years in June. And slowly but surely, I kind of, you know, we, we kind of pioneered lots of different programs as out global outreach has changed. Uh, so as it happens in the UK, and I was able to really connect, maybe because I was younger uh, at the time, or maybe just because, you know, sometimes you just get lucky. And we were able to bring in hundreds of young professionals um, every, you know, hundreds of young professionals every week into the JD Center. And it's still one of the most vibrant programs that we run. Um, and, and about two years ago, some of the executive management kind of, one of them moved on and another wanted to retire. So they asked me if I'd step up and it took me two weeks to, to actually respond whether I wanted to do that. Um, but the, the, uh, hesitation, yeah. the hesitation being what? The hesitation is that, you know, similar to a principal in a school and a, and a teacher in a school, if you love teaching, the last thing you want to do is become the principal. Right because you, you stop teaching, uh, or at least you don't teach as much as you, as you want to. So in reality, this is, a, this is something that people, everyone in their lives face, um, you know, moving to the next stage and how to do it and when to do it. But that's been an ongoing journey for me. And I try and remain as engaged as I can with my students, uh, with classes, with teaching, because that's really what I'm passionate about. You know, fundraising and management is secondary to that. What do you see that works with young professionals and over the course of your career, are you seeing that people are different and they're changing? And you know, obviously one of the fascinating things is how technology is affecting both attention spans and careers and you know, what you're competing against, but are the needs kind of the same? Are they changing? And what have you used to really be the most effective and to create the greatest level of connection with the people that you work with? So I think it's actually a double, it's a great question, by the way. And it's a double-edged sword. You sound so good when you say that with the, with the accent. It's, it's fantastic. I feel great. <laughs> no, that is. It's, uh, I used to love coming to the States because everyone thought I had a degree from Oxford, <laughs> even if I didn't, you know? Um, it's interesting. On the one hand, technology has given us huge opportunities <laughs> like the one which we're on now. And uh, for example, you know, the videos that we can now create without huge expense, uh, can be remarkable and, and we can really reach people who are in technology and on technology and on their phones. And I think that's something that we need to use to its maximum. Well, I would say what we found, and it depends every, you know, schools, campus, young professionals, what we found, for example, the young professionals, what they've been really open and receptive to is the one thing that technology hasn't yet, and maybe with VR, 
we will. One, it's never going to replace that human connection. And I think that what people, whether they're looking for a partner to date or on a very basic level, or whether they're looking to socialize and just meet new people, or whether they're looking for, to connect with their Judaism, you know, and belong to something and a greater community, no Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, or social media is ever going to do that for us. And actually, funnily enough, I think that as a global outreach movement, and even as a national outreach movement here in, in JLE, what we can provide in terms of whether it's synagogues, whether it's community centers, that's never, AI is never going to replace that. You know, it actually gives us an opportunity for people to say, you know what, sitting at a Shabbat table with my phone switched off for two hours a week with a rabbi and a and his children is now even more relevant than it has been before because people just don't get a chance with anyone for two hours and not touch a phone never mind at a shabbat table so people are really open now and i think that actually one of the one of the opportunities of the 21st century is that we can actually offer people an opportunity a safe space where they could just meet people be themselves not have to put the best picture out from the evening just have like almost a digital detox whether it's once a week or a few times a week a chance to really connect and belong i was having this thought as you were as you were talking about that point which is it's such a fundamental point that I haven't heard articulated. What's really fascinating is, um, wrong, borrowing from the wrong areas, but you know, what made Osama bin Laden so effective at avoiding the CIA and avoiding America was he basically did a complete technology detox. And I think one of the amazing things is, it's like the more advanced we get, the more that basic stuff becomes more fundamental. If you wanna you know, avoid being all the way off the grid and you can survive for many years when everyone's trying to chase you, the same thing's trying to chew about keeping yourself sane and safe by creating these spaces that are unaffected by the technology. So that's a fascinating for idea. Me, I mean, for me, this is a little bit similar to, um, to smoking. I think that we will look back in 20, 30, 40 years time and our kids will look back and they'll be like, what, so you're telling me you didn't have safe spots? Like, <laughs> like you didn't have smoking areas or social media areas in your life? Like wow. everyone does Shabbat now. Like everyone has this Shabbat experience. Like I genuinely think that Right now, we kind of, we've all, we're living in a generation where it's come into our lives. So when smoking, no one knew it was unhealthy. Everyone's smoking. But I think over the next, I mean, Google, Facebook, all the biggest giants are working on this, on this kind of mindful, on this safe space. And the beauty is that Judaism provides so much opportunity for mindfulness, of being present, being in the moment, seeing the blessings in your life. We've just got, and that's Judaism in a nutshell, to be conscious, to be in the moment, to be present, whether it's a broad whether it's tefillin, whether it's it, all of these things, and mezuzah, just remind yourself what you're stepping outside your door for. So the gift of Judaism now is becoming more and more relevant, I think, as technology advances. And I think that people are going to come, I, 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 you know, I'm not trying to prophesize here, but I think that in 20, 30, 40 years time, people will look back and they'll say, so you're saying you just took your phone with you to bed? That's crazy. You know, and they'll, people will want to create spaces where they can have that rest and that peace and that inner peace. Fantastic. I, I have to be mindful of your time. I want to ask you right. one, one question that is kind of coming up. So one of the amazing things about the JLE that's impressed me for such a long time is the amount of personalities and unbelievable teachers and educators and world famous people that are, you know, just kind of like the regulars on right. your staff. How right. have you worked in an environment like that, obviously coming into a, a, an organization that has such powerhouse players? How have you you know, kind of cultivated yourself. And now in a, as a management position, how do you manage, I'm not suggesting anyone has, you know, personality things, but you know, right. worked in a company that has so many strong players, how do you manage that for yourself and for working with each other? This is very interesting. I have to tell you that that's a, a powerful question. 
and one which I have to be very careful and diplomatic how I answer being live on Facebook. But what I'll tell you is it's, it's very interesting. There's a guy who lectures in Harvard University who I met last week, and he, gave me, he showed me a life-changing chart, um, which actually is unbelievable. It's changed the way that I see things and view things. So it could be whoever does watch this, this if this is my little gift to you, it's amazing. It, it, I, I can't draw it out for you, but if you imagine a graph and you had, you know, you know, you've got your horizontal and vertical, so if you look at your vertical line and you put that as competence and at the top of the line, that's your competence. Then you've got your line, which is line here, which is, we call it friendliness and attitude. And then you put your kind of line diagonally across at the top. So the guys at the top who are the most friendly, the most competent, those are your superstars. Those are the people which are just incredible. Um, and then you've got at the bottom left-hand corner are the people which are not friendly, not, not competent. You know what you have to do with them. Where most businesses fails, and it applies to outreach as well, is that they get the next two boxes confused. So the guy who's really friendly and not competent, they're like, oh, we've got to keep them. They're so nice. And, you know, they, they always smile. And the guy who's competent, they're like, oh, he's not friendly or he doesn't have the right attitude. So I've got to get rid of him. So this guy, he's a religious guy, but he lectures in Harvard. And he said to me, that's the mistake. He said, the guys who are on top of the line, that's where, you're, that's where good business, good education is done. You just need to figure out how you're going to use the people who are competent to their maximum practice. And I think what a lot of businesses on the same could apply cure of is that they're like, Oh, if the guy's a big personality, I can't handle him. It's no, it's like a team. I know you guys have football. You call it differently to what we have, but it, it's, it's essentially you're playing as a team. If you have your quarterback or your striker or your defense or whatever, you use each person uh, to their maximum and you really believe in them. Then there's unbelievable things can be done as a team and you cannot compare when you have an eclectic force coming together, combining together, and really it's about getting their bind of understanding it. Actually, if each person on the team does their best, and this is something I love from Arabic, you don't need to be the best at everything, but if you are great at speaking and you're great at recruiting and you're great at closing and you're great at, at, at playing guitar, then when you bring that orchestra together, and I would say that the biggest satisfaction that I have, I'm actually, I play a lot of music as well and I sing, and the biggest satisfaction I have is when I bring the whole orchestra of the JLE or whoever I'm working with together to that harmony, there's nothing like it. And to be a conductor and to bring out the strengths and every one of the people that's watching this as well, every person has something they're incredible at. And you just need to find that and just do that well. Don't worry about the stuff you're not that great at because we're here to like shine and do our good things and do the things that we can do best. And really about ma good management is about bringing all those different parts and saying, right, you're great at speaking, you do the speak the speech, you're great at recruiting, you bring the people in and together you can all take pride and make people feel ownership over, over it. And then you can have the unbelievable force in any, in any capacity in any work that you're doing. Uh, final question is, what do you feel based on your broad international experience is the biggest challenge that is facing the Jewish people and what are you doing in your role personally um, to combat that, to deal with it, to change it? I think that, again, I'm speaking personally, but also what I've experienced from conversations I've had with people around the globe. I think that the, the two words are relevance and meaningful. Like those are relevance and meaning, which is basically, to me, I'm that, I was that five-year-old kid who was like, why dad and mama, are you going crazy? Like, we're not eating here. Why would you not do this anymore, right? So the idea of creating something which can be relevant and meaningful for every person on their level a way that we can celebrate Judaism as opposed to have to keep it, a way that we can actually enjoy every mitzvah that we do. And sometimes it's hard, but going to the gym and doing tough mud is also hard and people do it, right? That means to find the deep satisfaction in hard work, 
in winning, in coming out on top, in developing ourselves and developing and making the world a better place through Judaism, that is something that most people would say, I can't put a synagogue where people are going, rah, rah. I can't put that, like that seems like, are you talking about Judaism, Rabbi? It doesn't sound to me like Judaism that I went to on Yom Kippur for. So I think the biggest challenge we have is that people no longer see Judaism as a meaningful and relevant force in their lives. It's got nothing to offer them. And I think Jewish outreach has always been about showing how it is relevant and meaningful, which is why I've joined it. But in the 21st century, like I said, we need to constantly change those messages and find a way that whatever people are looking for, that we can find a way to show them how the Torah can be a light to your own personal life and help you succeed and, and achieve your ultimate greatness. Amazing. Rabbi Benji, could you tell us how people can find more about you personally or about the JLE of the UK? Yeah. So everything's on our website, jle.org.uk. Uh, you can find my contact details there. You can find our staff there. And if you want to have any of our lecturers speak anywhere in the globe, then you can contact me too there. Um, so jle.org.uk and everything is there on the site. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, We have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.